Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Gym's Cast with your host, Joel Kleber. And a bit of a different episode this week. So what we're going to do is um, I've actually started my own podcast called Authentic Convos um, with Joel Kleber. And basically what it is, it has a bit of a mental health um, slant towards it. And I know, and if you do listen to the to the show regularly in the Facebook Live, how passionate Jim is about mental health. He, he puts a lot of money into it every year. I mean, I hope they can do something about it. So I did an interview with a former AFL player called Simon Hogan who retired um, due to depression in 2012. And there's a lot of media about it at the time. And so we went to school together. So what I thought I would do is just capture a chat with him, went for around 90 minutes and actually go right into depth about depression and mental health and, and bipolar now uh, with his condition. Um, I think it gives you a good insight into topics that aren't talked about a lot. Um, you know, mental health awareness is a lot more than just depression and anxiety. So I hope this interview can can show you that and can demonstrate you that. Um, and if you want to check out more of the content, it's uh, Joel Cleaver Authentic Combos on Spotify, iTunes, and also you can follow the Instagram at, at Joel Cleaver Authentic. Um, love to hear from you, YouTube video as well. And uh, we'll do another couple of episodes with Jim next week and we'll do a big burst on some topics. So if you've got anything, feel free to send them through to social media at gyms.net. But until next week, have a great one. Well, hi, everyone. With another Authentic Convos podcast, and my guest today is Simon Hogan. So for those of you who don't know Simon, and first of all, I actually appreciate you coming out this way and doing it. It's a long way out here, so no worries appreciate all. you. And um, so for those of you who don't know Simon who are listening, Simon was drafted in 2006 by the Geelong Cats. He played 22 games for the Cats between 2009 in 2011 before retiring at the end of 2012 after being diagnosed with a depressive disorder. At the time, there was a lot of publicity around that, a lot of afl.com.au stories and multiple publications picked that up. He also holds a science degree, majoring in psychology, um, and you were also involved in Headspace. I, th- I don't know if you still are. And you also created a program called uh, Thick and Thin as well, which was the VAFA, which was about... I think helping mates and stuff like talk about depression or anxiety issues and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, is there anything I missed out in there in the intro there? No, well, I think because I've sort of moved on a little bit from the psychology path and right. done a master's of health administration more recently. Yeah, I've been working in in hospitals and sort of always have an interest in the mental health space, but sort of moved out of it slightly. Yeah, so master of ma- master of um, health administration, which is great. So. Uh, high achiever, absolutely high achiever, and I personally know Simon. We actually went to school together, so he's doing me a good, good solid here and coming on. So we went to uh, Manual College in Warrnambool there, and uh, we went from Year Seven to Year Twelve. So appreciate you doing this, Simon. So we'll start off with firstly a bit about your background. So where are you from, and where did you grow up? And so I was born in Dunalinquin, New South Wales, yeah. and then I uh, moved to Warrnambool when I was five and grew up in Warrnambool. As you said, mm-hmm. we went to school together down at Manual College there, which was a lot of fun. Um, and then I was drafted to Geelong at the end of 2006, so after we finished school. And that was from the Geelong Falcons? From the Geelong Falcons, yeah. Had yeah. a year at the Falcons and then was lucky enough to get picked up. Yeah. Who'd you play junior footy with? Uh, Warrnambool Footy Club. Yeah. Warrnambool yeah. Blues, yeah. Warrnambool Blues, that's, that's right. And uh, so what was it like? We'll start something a bit more different. What was it like growing up in Warrnambool? What are some things that only Warrnambool people would know? Because there's a couple of things that um, people from Warrnambool, there's like probably 10 things that only Warrnambool people would know. So yeah. what, what makes Warrnambool really unique and a good place to grow up to you? Oh, the first thing that comes to mind is the is the dirty angel, which the dirty angel, yeah, uh, yep. is a statue in Warrnambool and around about that uh, anyone from Warrnambool would know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, but growing up in Warrnambool was a lot of fun. It's a beautiful place to have the beach and it's a great place over summer and um, lots of uh, very good sporting culture and uh, very active place. So I had a lot of fun growing up in Warrnambool. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are there's lots of things you could you could go down on, yeah. on things that uh, people from Warrnambool <laughs> only know, but uh, might true. not be 
that appropriate? No, they won't. They won't be. And um, the Dirty Angel was actually showed on Rove Live. You now when they used to send you ah. things and they had actually the Dirty Angel from the side, yep. it looks like it's doing, performing a certain action, we will say. So for people who want to know what that is, you have to get down to Warnable. And there's a bit of a tourism plug and drive around the roundabout and just stop there and have a look. That's for us. You can't, <laughs> you can't miss it when you're there. That's it. And you're right, it does have a massive sporting culture. So I think when we were growing up, it was pretty much, there was obviously no social media was just starting to touch it. Mm. But, you know, probably year eight, years nine, thought of Facebook sort of yep. was really becoming in. So it was generally just, you know, go to school and play your footy and play your cricket or basketball or soccer and that was really it so yeah, yeah. that was your life growing up in Warrnambool which That's is great it. it was a lot of fun yeah exactly right so now let's talk about your um your footy career so obviously you, you played you played professionally for Geelong you got drafted in 2006 yeah um and you were there in 2012 and I think you retired due to being diagnosed with a depressive disorder so let's touch on your career now so what was the first couple of years like at the Cats uh so I was a very skinny kid i was drafted and i think i was about 57 kilos or something yeah i didn't tiny. know you were that light yeah no i was i was very skinny i had never been to the gym before and um it was a was a good runner mm-hmm. i think that's was part of the reason why geelong took a bit of a chance yeah, we were an me. elite athlete yeah um, still are most likely <laughs> no, <laughs> far from at least <laughs> um but yeah my first couple of years was spent putting on weight basically mm. so i was playing in the vfl I was lucky enough to win a VFL Premiership in my first season, um, uh, which was great. Uh, but yeah, a lot of time in the gym, a lot of time eating lots of protein mm. and uh, and just bulking up really. So there wasn't much pressure or expectation around playing AFL. Uh, I could just sort of work on my game in the VFL and mm. um, put on weight. Because you were drafted right in that time when that was Geelong hitting their straps in that sort of golden era, right? When you had all your ablets and you had all... And right, all those sort of people coming at that time. You got what was the club like in those early days? Because it would have been quite a surreal moment that you've seen these guys on TV, all like superstars, and all of a yeah. sudden now you're your teammates with these people. It is very surreal. It was very surreal. Um, and yeah, two thousand and seven, my first season there, Geelong won the flag, and um, they had all these superstars, and uh, it was it was amazing environment to be around. It. I think everything just sort of clicked that year, and um, the success continued on for the next few years mm. uh, but it was just a very uh, and it was also getting used to a professional sporting environment was, was took a little while just the expectations around around training and it was a very um, uh, conscientious group in terms of training and um, very, everyone pushed each other and it sort of was a very um, elite environment that, as you would expect because mm. you were very um you, if people don't know, Simon was—you've always been a really ex- excellent achiever. Whatever you've done, if it's basketball, school, footy, whatever it was, you've always done really well. So that's strange that you said that the expectations took you maybe by a bit surprise. When I, mean, I think even prior to going to Geelong, you were already doing your—you're probably doing a high level of training before. So what was the difference in the step up? Uh, I think it was just that everyone was on the same page. Everyone was pushing themselves. Everyone was pushing each other. Uh, I think some of the environments I've been in previously you'd get sort of a handful or you'd have sort of the top half of the um, group would push each other but sort of it would drop away pretty quickly. I think that um, in that environment, everyone's pushing for spots, pushing for um, to get better as a group and individually. So I think it was that sort of collective um, expectation and, and drive that really was the, was the main difference. Yeah, did, was that a pressure on yourself or was that something... Like what was the actual pressures off that environment like on someone? It was pretty taxing. Um, I think it took a little while to get used to and, and 
being a perfectionist, which we'll probably talk a bit more about mm. later on, um, it was quite hard to uh, um, sort of not not be one of the better players and be right down the bottom and, and really probably be one of the worst players. Um, and sort of, for me, that was a really, really hard thing to get my head around and to try and get comfortable with. Um, and that's probably what, what drove me to try and push harder and harder and perhaps sometimes to an unhealthy level. Um, that that just drive to be as good as the people around me, mm. um, which perhaps isn't the most healthy approach. Yeah, let's talk about that now. Actually, let's transition into that because um, it's main the main point of this having you on is obviously not the the sporting side. Obviously, it's a part of who you are, but it's obviously talk more about the battles with depression and more recent some other stuff. So let's sort of touch on that now. So that thing where you said about being a perfectionist and the pressures, right? For people to give context, Simon, you've always were at the top of everything that I've known you are. You're the best at this, best at this, best at that, best at that, which is due to your hard work and talent and stuff like that. And then, as you said, you've come now into a professional environment where you're mm. down here. That I don't know, just from an outsider looking in and probably knowing a little bit about who you are, that competitive nature, that would have probably drive you, like that pressure or that feeling would have been really hard on you, I could imagine. Yeah, it was really hard. Uh, I think for the first couple of years, as I said, uh, there wasn't a lot of expectation just because I was so skinny and not ready for AFL footy. Um, so I could sort of uh, just go about my own business a little bit. But then coming into my third season, I probably physically was, was sort of ready to start looking at playing in the AFL. And um, at the end of the pre-season that year, I, that was my first time I sort of experienced, had, had an episode of, of depression and put that down to, um, yeah, the expectation and the pressure around now you've sort of had this opportunity, you've got another another contract, another couple of years, now it's time to actually start playing some AFL footy and um, start building a career. So I think that expectation and, and um, again, being in that elite environment that was still... Um, experience a lot of uh, a lot of success really both drove me to perform better but also caused a, a, some significant mental health battles mm. so let's talk about it now so you said in your third year so you've been around 2021 yeah so the first time that feelings so that's when you first developed feelings of depression or anxiety or pressure to perform uh, maybe yep. due to a bit about probably your perfectionism and maybe you weren't getting the results that you want so what's happened that first time? So the first time that's happened and you started feeling that way, what what was next or was it something you sort of sat on for a while or did you reach out sometime or what happened from there? I sat on it for a little while. Um, I was just struggling to sort of get to training and, and um, perform in the gym. I just wasn't really that motivated. I just sort of lost my, my drive and my will to push myself. Um, I was a really, I started to lose my appetite and that was a big issue with um, the way my body was and mm. my weight and everything so I had to keep up my, my food but um, I thought it was something that I could deal with I didn't immediately think of it as a, as a mental health issue I just thought it was um, oh, something's not quite right and something that I can push through and, and fix on my own uh, got to a point where I was too unwell um, I was sort of unable to really train and um was noticeably um, fatigued and struggled to sleep. My sleep really, really went out the window. So I reached out to our uh, the club G- GP, who was an excellent support, and he 
then subsequently sort of put me in touch with psychologists and then psychiatrists and sort of went down this path of building up a professional um, professional network but things uh, and then I was sort of still very much holding this to myself and not really telling trying to hide it from the other players trying to um, deal with it on my own was talking to um, my partner and um, my family about it but was very much sort of this is something I can just deal with and I can just push through um, and I've reached out to psychologists I've reached out to psychiatrists that's sort of my job done mm. in, a, in a way um, and then yeah things progressively got got worse so there must have been a lot of pressure on you obviously being in a like it's a blokey sort of environment you don't and back then probably wasn't obviously there's a lot more awareness around it now but back then it would have been pretty hard to sort of I don't know what you would have felt, but you know, I'm putting myself in your perspective, it would have been maybe, might be a bit embarrassing, I don't know, it might have been pretty scary to sort of say that. But So what happened in regards to the club? So you've gone to the doctor and they put you in place with a network, but you said you did say you did tell your family or they, they knew? I spoke to, yeah, my parents, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Yep. Spoke to them about it. Yep. Again, they didn't really know what to do apart from they were sort of guided by the GP as well in terms of whatever they say and... Um, whatever the um, psychologists and psychiatrists say, that's what that's what we'll do. But at least them knowing made a big difference. I think um, just just being there and being able to ring them and say I'm feeling feeling mm. shit today and um, things are really hard and just having someone to listen was was really helpful. But I think they also um, they struggled with not knowing what they can do to help, and it's still still something that they they struggle with so um, i think it's a frustration of many parents you know you're their child or they're their kid and they see him in pain or whatever and they want to try and help but it's one of those things where it's not a physical injury where you can go and do that it's a mental thing right so it is and it's something that i think people want to try and just fix mm. and that's also was uh, my approach at the start you just want to fix it and just get it up but it's not it's not how it works unfortunately there's no quick fix um there's lots of things you can do to help but um there's yeah, no magic bullet that can sort of get you get you through and just put you back to a hundred percent. Well, mm. unfortunately. So you went and approached the um the doctors and and you started going there and you sort of said, well, that's my job done. Yeah. What do you exactly mean by that? Did you did you go to some sessions or what happened from there? I went to some sessions and I think uh, I sort of with the with the psychologist, I thought yeah the hardest part was was reaching out. Um, and then it's pretty courageous because yeah just to sorry to interrupt you but that's pretty courageous because you're right probably does seem like that's the hardest part for most people then they go why didn't i do it earlier which is generally yeah. most of the, the thing they say and that was definitely my mm. approach why didn't i do it earlier um the i think by just having a few sessions i sort of was like okay this is this was what i have to do but whereas i wasn't probably prepared to actually do the work that's required particularly with psychologists when sort of the work outside of the sessions and the way I thought about things and my perfectionism, um, I probably just thought that by going and ticking, it was sort of ticking a box. It's like, okay, if I tick these boxes, then I'll then I'll get back on track and that'll be all I need to do. Um, as I've gone on for 10 years now and had um, long periods of being well, but uh, some some other battles along the way, I realised that it's, it's an ongoing learning uh, that's required and, and it's lots of self-reflection and self-development along the way and it's not just sort of 
going along to a session and then leaving it at the door and, and that's sort of done. So I was sort of, mm. yeah. So what do they want you to work on back in your initial, so that's your first time then, they've given you stuff to work on. You mentioned the word perfectionism. Yeah. So was it something that identified you? Was your perfectionism one of the drivers to maybe making you feel that way or what was it about that? Because the word perfectionism. Yeah, perfectionism and sort of comparisons to others and, and my um, ability or my um, lack of ability to just sort of focus on what I'm doing and, and how I'm going and um, not worry about others so much and, and how I yeah, how I compare to them. So I think from a perfectionistic perspective, um, it was it's just a, an inability to accept things that weren't done perfectly. So... Um, uh, just be able to leave things as they are and be okay with that and accept them is a huge challenge. It still is a huge challenge for me and something I'm still working on to just sort of not have to be one of the best and to not have to be um, excellent at whatever I'm doing because the problem with that approach is you're never going to be the best at everything Um, and I tend to if I don't think I'm going to be very good at it I just avoid it so I just don't do it at all mm. um, which is not healthy at all do you think you're um, well do you think because you, I know you, you're a very high achiever at school you're obviously ducks obviously best best footy player athlete all that sort of stuff do you think those that tendency in childhood or that thing when you're a young person sort of obviously that perfection that's where you develop that trait yeah I yeah. think so I think I think it would have been good to have some failures as a as a young person and to learn from those i think i mean i'm i'm grateful that i um was able to achieve those things and but i never really had an opportunity to yet yeah, to, f- to fail and to learn from that and to not be good at something and to be okay with that uh so i think i went through s- school thinking i can do whatever i put my mind to uh and that sort of subsequently played out as a really unhealthy mindset to have and sort of is still something that I'm I'm working on. Mm. Still to this day. Okay. Yeah, yeah, the perfectionism is still something that I I speak to my psychologist about now and um it's still it's I guess so ingrained and um yeah, it's it's a real challenge for me. So do you think that perfectionism trait was the main trigger for your first let's say we'll call it episode or what about the age of 20 or 21 or was it something else or I think it was the main thing and, and yeah, the expectation around the, the footy world um, and not feeling like I could I could live up to it mm. and and, um, and see myself as a failure because I uh, yeah, didn't think that I was I was gonna be good enough. Mm. Uh, and I guess being a fringe player is a really tough position to be in for someone who's a perfectionist and um, being in and out on the side and sort of and that, I even back then, so sort of two thousand and nine, um, the scrutiny wasn't isn't like what it is ten years later in today's world. But there's still a lot of of scrutiny on on your performance on an individual performance. And I guess I um, was someone who would would read into that a little bit. Now, was that when you say scrutiny? Was that from internal sources or outside sources or uh, both? Both. I think the my worry and my um, mental health issues were more related to the outside sources and sort of um, not so much a little bit a little bit media but sort of worry about what 
friends, people I know, people who know me um, might think if I get dropped. And, really? Um, right. Yeah, so there's a lot of sort of, I'm in this position that is very, very public world. Um, so just the, the, the worry of what other people will think at that time and mm. what other, yeah, but what people will think is again, a huge thing that, um, for me that just hangs around and is in the back of my mind and still something I'm working on. Well, how do you work on that then? So it's, it's great that you can self reflect and actually say that's a big issue for me. So how, how do you work on it? What do you talk about with your psychologist to help you manage that in some way or? Yeah, well, I've just started seeing a um, psychoanalytic therapist, so it's a bit more trying to get to the root cause of things. So we're um, talking about the perfectionism stuff as a child and that achievement stuff. Um, but I think the previous work I've done with CBT psychologists has more been around... So what's CBT, sorry, just for um, Cognitive, cognitive Behavioural Therapy, right, yeah. uh, which is a bit more... Um, or was a bit more task oriented so there'd be sort of um things that i'd I'd talk about in my in my week or things that that come up and then we'd sort of break it down into why you might think that way and then what you can do uh to try and alleviate some of that negative thinking Mm. and so it's more sort of task focus whereas the stuff i'm doing now is a bit more exploratory um which is a little bit tricky at the moment when I'm still not feeling great, but it's, yeah. uh, I think it's a really healthy uh, thing to, for me to get down to the root cause of things. That's very interesting. So, that, yeah, that's a great, that's an interesting approach. So, it's, so you've done the CBT, but this is taking you right back and trying to go back the moments in time that say maybe when you're six or seven and isolate incidents or something like that there that you can maybe sort of go, okay, and work from there. Yeah, incidents or behavior patterns or things I, yeah, um, yeah used to the way I used to think and feel mm. as a as a young person and sort of I guess uh, for example the way I used to um, push myself so hard to achieve things um, because of this fear of or one fear of failure and two want to be better than whoever was around me mm. um, and why that was important what that sort of the questions that come up are then what would it matter if you weren't the best yeah, and, and sort of a discussion around around that sort of topic. Yeah, it might sound like a simple simple question, but it's not really, is it? If that's asked to someone in your position, like mm. you know, you sort of go, "Well, yeah, I haven't really experienced that," or what would you know? It's sort of a interesting approach. I actually haven't learned. I've actually learned something new. So I listened to that, but um, I haven't heard yeah. that. So yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. So let's now talk about you're 21. You have your go back in time now. So you're 21. You have your first episode. The club knows about it, all that sort of stuff now. The next couple of years, were you ever hospitalised during that time, or what happened in those next couple of years whilst whilst you were playing, or what was the what happened in your journey from then on? So I ended up being hospitalised when I was twenty one. Okay. Um. So that was my yeah the first time I was hospitalised. Went to the Geelong Clinic for a couple of nights, I think. Now let's talk about that process for people who don't know, because people probably aren't aren't aware of it. They been people talk about hospitalisation or psychiatric wards. What happened? So. Were you made? Were you a voluntary person or involuntary, or how did what happen there? I was a voluntary person, yep. so decided with um, with the health professionals that I'd built up, plus my family um, and my partner, um, that we would um, go down this path. It got to a, a point where I was I was that unwell and um, not so much suicidal 
um, but just couldn't couldn't get out of bed, couldn't get couldn't eat, couldn't um, couldn't function, couldn't function. Yeah. yeah. So it was a decision to try and get back to a functional level. Uh, I went to the Geelong clinic for a couple of nights and found that really challenging, just being in in Geelong and it's a smaller hospital. So made the decision to go to the Melbourne clinic, um, which is much bigger. And gets you out of there, right? You don't have that fear of saying, oh, what if someone sees me or... Yeah, exactly. It's a bit of anonymity. Yeah, it's a hard word, anonymity, Um, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, In in going to Melbourne, uh, which was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do the first the first night in um psychiatric psychiatric hospital uh you know with people checking on you overnight and um so you would have been in a were you in a locked ward or you were in an open one in an open ward open ward yeah yeah so there's a ward for um depression basically and uh my memory is a bit a bit hazy of the whole experience Mm. but I, i just remember being um, very scared at the time, and I think I think that's very a normal thing for people the first time they they go in. Um, and then I sort of got used to it, and and I think I I needed that that break and that sort of complete removal from my normal world um, and access to psychologists and psychiatrists on a daily basis, and sort of that you know trying things with with medication yeah, and. Yeah. Um, it was just a very safe place, and and also to be around other people who are experiencing similar things, who are um, you know unwell as well. Sometimes it's very very helpful just to just to hear that someone else is experiencing something similar. Um, yeah, so I found that the the sort of peer support that came through that. Mm really really um really helpful and probably would have removed as well that fear of that um people judging you because everyone in there as well has got similar conditions right so you don't have to worry about that element at least you know you can sort of concentrate just about yourself and getting yourself right without fear of judgment from others because everyone in there is on the in a similar yeah exactly yeah it, it was it was still one of the hardest things to have to reveal that i was having time off from um, the footy club in particular right. and, all the, and the playing group. and So how did you reveal that then? What, what happened? What's the process? So once I decided to take time off, I was just I was just out of there. But I, um, two of the guys that were drafted with me, really good mates, um, Joel Seld and mm-hmm. Tom Hawkins, they told the group what was going on on my behalf because I was sort of not in a, not in a state to be able to, to, be able to do it. So um, then it was... A bit of a relief that it was out in the open, uh, more than anything. I think this all happened when you were in. Uh, in yeah, so a couple of days after, I decided yeah. to take time off because up until that point, I was still sort of around um, people. Uh, some people definitely would have been aware that I was I was struggling, and I would have sort of mentioned bits and pieces, but no one probably knew the full extent of how I was going. Mm. So once I took time off, it's very obvious when someone's not there for training and um yeah it was the end of pre-season so there's no no games yet um but once that happened yeah that was time to sort of let everyone know and get out in the open and um yeah it was great that tom and joel could do that on my on my behalf Mm. and then i could sort of not not worry about rushing back not worry about sort of and you know it was great to get lots of messages of support and 
uh, all these people looking out for me and, and all that sort of stuff, mm. which was which was really nice. So how long did you find? How long were you in on the first time? How long was it a couple of days you said, or how long? Uh, I was in there for I think it was about twelve days. Twelve days, yeah. Which yeah. is relatively short because um, from my experience, you know, my mum stints with three to four months every time, right? So twelve days, it, but it's an intense twelve days because as you said, the realization when you go in there. And that first night, I can imagine, would have been like you're laying there and you're thinking, you know, how do I get in position? Yeah, I don't know if that was the thoughts you had, but absolutely, yeah. And you sort of go from there. Um, but um, so you've got so in there. What were you actually diagnosed with? What was your official diagnosis back then? So back then, it was major depression disorder. Major depression disorder, right? Yeah. And they would have obviously put you on treatments and stuff like that. So you were in there for twelve days, and now you've you've come out. You're back into the real world. Yeah. So what was that first sort of coming out of there? What happened the next couple of weeks? Like, what what was the plan? Uh, so I sort of eased back into um, the normal, my normal world. Uh, I sort of eased back into training and um, was just doing my own program. Where uh, and I mean, it's it, in lots of ways an incredibly lucky environment to be um, to have support staff around you, so you can always train with someone. They can, you know, keep you make sure you you sort of stay fit, but mm. sort of keep things ticking over, and you've got a whole team of uh, physical professionals, you know, um, that are really on your on your side to to make sure you're, you're still doing stuff. So I sort of trained away from the team for a little bit, um, and I was very sort of up to the um, psychologist and psychiatrist appointments, and was they were pretty frequent, um, and I was really lucky that I had great support from the club to be able to organise all that sort of stuff and they really helped with um, making sure that appointments and things worked around training and I sort of could leave that a little bit, which I know is a huge mm. huge burden for, for, for individuals that, that don't have that sort of team working for them around them. Um, you have to do it all themselves and mm. that when, you're, when you're unwell, it can be so hard to organise appointments and get your life organized um so yeah it was sort of a a gradual build back into training a gradual um gradual increase in um those appointments and and things um Mm. and really there was no expectation on getting back to full-time training or playing anytime soon so really had had really lucky um support really Mm. good support so it's sort of an interesting timing because um, that time was maybe when mental health and mental awareness was starting to sort of come to the fruition. Yep. So what was the attitude originally like when you came back into the club? Obviously the, the people and the support, but what about the teammates? Or was it how did you feel when you sort of came back into the mix? Uh, I was so worried about how people would react. Um, but I think once once it was out in the open, people were, were really good. And as you say, it's it sort of transition time 10 years ago mm. um between it being more accepted and more out in the open and uh people were were, were very supportive the conversations were always positive um there was no one who you know said anything negative or anything that made me feel worse which is uh pretty lucky i think mm. in hindsight um yeah and generally people were um just, just wanting to know what they can, what they can do to help, and I, and 
I didn't have a good answer for that. I, don't, mm. uh, I still don't really have a good answer for that. I don't that. think anyone does because it's, and that's a frustrating thing for people, right? They want to help someone, but it's because it's a mental affliction or mental illness. You know, what, what's there other than just saying, oh, you know, you could be there to, to chat any time and that's really it. I don't know. I don't yeah. Know what else? I think, yeah, I think that's the thing, just being there, knowing that they're there, mm. knowing that they can um, help with, yeah, just just taking you out for coffee taking taking you to making sure you get to training making sure you're eating and and that sort of stuff that sort of um can be very helpful but there's still just a lot of things that you need to work on with professionals and i guess at times just giving you space to do that as well Hmm. um so we'll go touch it now so you've, you've come back into the fold and you did end up playing 22 games in the senior side in a very competitive side so we'll call that 50. We'll give them a handicap of two and a half. <laughs> now, so did you get, during, before you announced your retirement, which we'll get to in a minute, did you did you get it, uh, into any trouble again after that first episode during the career? Like where you got hospitalised again or was there any other episodes or something like that before you ended up calling it uh, retiring? Um, so I didn't get hospitalised again, but I... So it was one stint during those six years? During or, those six years. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. My, my memory's okay. a, bit, a <laughs> yeah. bit fuzzy, which we'll get to yeah, yeah, sure. uh, at some stage. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I did have more uh, episodes, um, and I not as not not quite as severe. But I took, um, I think I had some time off again later in the year, and each as I later in my in those six years, sorry, as I. Um, started playing games uh i had a i had a pattern of becoming unwell at the end of pre-season so i had sort of three years in a row where that time of year was was really bad and i think that was initially flagged as seasonal affective disorder um sort of coming into winter but it was more to do with the expectations around the season starting Mm. and um probably a bit of exhaustion from the end of pre-season and um, yeah, not sure what what you what to expect from the year ahead, and just building up those building up those expectations and putting a lot of pressure on myself to be in the team in round one. Mm. Um, yeah, so that had sort of three three years in a row where that time of year was particularly hard. Yeah, and I want to just touch on now. You're a very academic person as well, and did it frustrate you back then just being known as a footballer? It did. Yeah. I was I was studying part time, so I started mm. started studying um, at Deakin in Geelong, a health science degree, and um, that was okay. But I found it hard because it was Geelong, and any sort of um, person that followed the football, and most people in Geelong follow the football mm. and follow Geelong, um, would sort of know who was who, and uh, so I sort of couldn't get away from football even while I was at. At uni, people want to talk about the cats and and that sort of thing. So, because you just wanted to really just segment it, didn't you? Like that's the footy side done. Outside of that, I've got my goals to do this, this, and this, and this, and this sort of. You wanted to just focus on those. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I wanted to have yeah the my um, academic side um, ticking over, and it, so I eventually uh, transferred to Melbourne Uni and started going to Melbourne Uni. Was that um, just to avoid those conversations? Was it about or what was that? What was the reason? Or obviously Melbourne Uni. We went. I go to Deakin. I went to Deakin as well, but Melbourne Uni being a better uni. But was that because just of that side of it, or you just wanted to get out of that John Long to separate it? Maybe I don't know. I more wanted to experience 
the, Mel- the Melbourne Uni. Okay. Lot. So I had a few yeah. few mates who were at Melbourne Uni. Um, my partner was at Melbourne Uni, um, and I I also a couple of years. I can't remember what year I you moved to Melbourne, but I actually yeah started living in Melbourne and commuting back to Geelong just to sort of partly to escape those those conversations, but to really try and get that separation between footy and which was important to you, right? You want to have that yeah. clear line in it for yourself. Yeah, I did, I did. Um, so I uh, I found a lot a lot better um, for me when I was at Melbourne Uni just because knowing knew who I was and no one cared about well I'm mm. sure people cared about footy but no one sort of <laughs> not in the yeah, same yeah. way that people in Geelong care about yeah. um, Geelong footy uh, so yeah I finished up doing as you said science degree and um, had a few years studying it at, in, in, at Melbourne Uni um, but it was always tricky trying to study both semesters because of the off season in the second semester, but some of my, my best memories of of my uni life are doing exams overseas. I was able to organise to do really in different places. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which was great. It meant I could study for the whole mm. year. Um, where some where some of the places you did a Melbourne Uni University exam? Um, so I did one at NYU in New York. Really? Yeah, yeah, that been awesome. It was great. Yeah. I remember skateboarding across. Um, Central Park. No, Central Park. Yeah. Yeah. Skateboarding across Central Park and then doing an exam at NYU. Really? Wow. I mean, which, awesome. was, yeah. which was a great experience. Yeah. Did one in Sri Lanka, um, which was very different to that experience. But uh, and I nice still MRT as well when you can do that's exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. Put, made me more relaxed. <laughs> um, yeah. So it was good to be able to fit fit uni around the footy mm. schedule because. That was important to you, obviously, to have that educational side. You really important to you. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was really important, and it did feel like I was uh, tapping into to other another side of me. That footy was never the be all and end all for me. I think um, I was sort of it was very late on the scene in terms of getting drafted. Mm. It was never really. I never grew up wanting to play AFL necessarily. It was just something that I enjoyed playing and. Um, it was great when it happened, but there was always, what am I going to do after footy? And being in the position I was in on the fringe, you never know how long it's going to last. And and having the uh, depressive episodes that I had, that sort of also put things in in perspective and was mm. kind of like, well, this is, I've got, I've got to, I've got to have other stuff going on. Mm. So um, yeah, it was really important to me. Now let's talk about um, near the retirement. Obviously, I think there's a few AFL articles on Google that come up on this few stories on you and stuff um, which are pretty good And but you decided to, to call it quits at the end of 2012 yeah. now that was and they cited you cited I think it was cited due to, to to mental health issues So and you, there was a lot of media at the time over that yeah. um, let's just talk about that time so in 2011 I had another episode uh, which I can't remember that well but um, it was reasonably severe and I had to take some time off again uh, and I ended up um, making the call sort of coming out of that experience that this footy world isn't for me uh, so I told the told the club sort of at the end of 2011 that I'll I'll see out my contracts play just play in the VFL in 2012 mm. um, and then finish up with the club 
at the at the end of that year and so that was actually a huge relief once I sort of made that call I think I was trying to fight because I thought that's what I had to do I thought I had to had to make this work and I'd already committed five years uh, where you know I'd sort of missed out on the the classic uni sort of experience of going to going to college or Mm. doing doing all those things and so I sort of felt like I had to had to make it work and once I sat back and um, did some work with with again with psychologists and psychiatrists um, probably particularly psychologists at the time uh, became clear that it wasn't going to be that healthy for me to continue and I didn't want to just push through because that's what would be expected and I know it was um, I was worried about how it would be be perceived you know it's a like really lucky position to be on an AFL list mm. and a lot of people would love love to be in that position that never get the opportunity um so I didn't want to come across as sort of um so you're still always worrying about the perception even though you knew that was probably the best decision for you but you might have even I'm not saying you would have but you might have even hang in there just because of what that perception of other people thought of you regarding the opportunity and stuff like that and yeah a little yeah. bit and I remember a few conversations with um certain people well one conversation in particular with the coach where I said I'm not sure if footy's for me um and he basically came back and said well what the hell are you doing here you know it's uh a lot of people would want to be in your position and that really stuck with me and still sticks with me is sort of the attitude of some people mm. around not accepting an individual for who they are and what they're actually interested in and it's not to say I hated footy. Um, I had some really good times and really enjoyed parts of it, but it, the lifestyle just didn't suit my, um, didn't suit me, and didn't suit my uh, approach to things. It was an, it was an unhealthy place for me to be when I was thinking about things in the way I in the way I was, and in some ways the way I still do. Mm. And you've made that call, so it's done. Two thousand twelve, and so what's happened after? Then you've sort of got this. Did you feel like, as you said before, a big weight off your shoulders and I don't have to worry about what people's perceptions, I can, I'm in Melbourne now, I can go do my thing. So mm. what happened there? Did you pursue your study even more or yes. what happened after that for the next couple of years? Yep. So I um, finished off my degree the year after. Um, I, had, I think I had sort of three or four subjects left to go. So I sort of did that part-time and worked at Headspace. Um, so I was really keen to... Let's touch on that real quickly, actually. Sorry, yeah. I had that written down. I didn't mention that. So you were... Headspace is an organisation which deals with um, young people and yeah. around mental health issues and stuff like that. And you did a... I think for a while you were an ambassador and you did some yep. stuff with them. So let's yeah. touch on that for a little bit. Yeah, so I was an ambassador for them and then I went and worked in their community um, engagement team as a community engagement officer. Um, and really that focus was on... So they, they target 12 to 25-year-olds... Um, provide service services around, um, I'm not sure how many centres they're up to now, but there's centres all over the place and they have a lot of online services. Uh, but really the role in the team I was in was around well, building awareness but in a practical in a practical way. So we helped design programs that went out to schools and um, community groups, footy clubs. So I did a lot of stuff still using the back of my on the back of my mm-hmm. footy career where I did a lot of stuff with with young um, young men 
just talking about mental health issues and about my experiences and about what you can do and help seeking and I guess trying to break down that stigma around 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 mental health issues. Did you find that therapeutic therapeutic for yourself in a way? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I did. It was um, actually a big part of my recovery was was getting involved with with Headspace, mm. um, and it was a just a, a really supportive environment where you could I, I was able to sort of go off and um, really use my experience to sort of develop different develop content and. Um, and I really did love the facilitation of, of workshops and, and talking to young people and being able to tell my story and sort of use it in a positive way. Mm. So how long did you do that for during that time post that? How many uh, years was it until you had, let's say, another episode or some more issues? Or did you always have ongoing issues whilst you were in that, doing the Headspace stuff? And so I was pretty good for that period, for, yeah. for those um, few years. I probably actually had a really good... Um, stable i'd say almost five years uh, of, of of being well where i was um so I'd, i did the headspace um gig for a couple of years 18 months mm-hmm. uh and then i traveled for a little bit and then i started a, a program where i did a masters of health administration through the australasian college of health service management right um, big one to get out big yeah. one to get out well the the masters was was through La Trobe Uni, yep. but the the college runs a program where you do the masters and you do four six month rotations at different health organisations. Mm. Um, and I finished my last rotation in that program was at Alfred Health, where then I ended up working until May during this year. Um, so for the majority of of that sort of end of two thousand and twelve. Or two thousand, including two thousand twelve, where I was, where I was well until sort of two thousand and eighteen. I was, I was pretty, pretty stable mm. and pretty well, and if you know, a few ups and downs within a normal range, but um, no real depressive episodes. I still saw a psychologist and was still on medication and and still saw a psychiatrist as well, but was stable. Mm. So let's now talk about more of your um, recent battles then. So we had a we cut off for a beer prior to doing this, just to sort of talk about a few things. Um, and you've had a few recent couple of issues. Um, you know, it's up to you how much you want to go into it. Um, but maybe you just want to touch on that because it's led to a new diagnosis, which yep. I think is quite probably important to talk about because it doesn't get spoken about enough. Yep. So maybe just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So 2019 has been a pretty shitty year for yep. me. Um, I've uh, at, in May. I was hospitalised again, so I think it was, I think that's the second time. Um, so, what do you think has brought this on? Because you've had such a you've had this period where you've been managing everything around, and some things just happened, or what's triggered it? Do you reckon, or what's happened? Or I think there was a bit of um, stress with work, and a bit of uh, I was sort of gone from one thing to another, and had sort of a clear plan, and I didn't really have a clear plan of what I was doing next with my career right. I guess so there's a little bit of that um, I also went off some medication uh, lithium which we'll talk about mm. more in a second but um, I went I went off that because my old psychiatrist um, didn't think I needed it uh, and I'd been on it for a long time lithium's a, 
commonly used for for bipolar. Um, I'll I'll build build mm. build towards that. Um, but I so I was hospitalised in in May and I tried uh, TMS, which is transmagnetic stimulation, which is basically a um, I don't know what what you'd call it, but a little sort of thing that goes on the side of your head and and taps away, um, and you sit and sit and just get that um, for about half an hour, and that's meant to sort of stimulate the the, um, the brain. Now, I want to touch on this now because people might be surprised that like hear about that, like obviously because we think obviously all these medical advances and that, but something like that sounds pretty, let's say, old school in a way. So it just sort of, you sat down and it, they sort of sit there and it just taps on your head for what, like half an hour. Yeah, right. they sort of, they, they, they work out the exact position for you and there's, you know, technology involved sure. in terms of working it working it out, but it's a relatively new age um It is new age. It is, right. yeah, it's yeah, quite, right. I don't know how long it's been around for, but um, they've only had it at the Melbourne Clinic for a couple of years, I believe. Um and I had a really good response to that to that treatment, as well as I was on medication and things. But um, missed a couple of weeks of work with going to hospital, mm-hmm. and then went back to work. Um, and then my wife and I went on a, a holiday. We we're meant to go for about seven weeks, I think. Um, and I can't remember any of this holiday, which again mm-hmm. we'll get to the explanation in a bit. But uh, I became very unwell while we were away, and we came back early, um, flew back early, and I went back to hospital, tried the TMS again because I had such a good response. Um, didn't have a response this time, and um, eventually went down the track of trying ECT, electro so, yeah. electroconvulsive therapy, mm-hmm. um, which we've discussed. Yes at length yeah um but i it's a it's a treatment that has a lot of stigma associated with it Mm. uh used to be you know um what's the movie that everyone talks about one flew over the clock a clockwork orange maybe or one flew over something like that yeah it could be um where you know it's sort of things attached to people's skulls and in and um inducing seizures and um it's, it is it is a full on medical treatment medical treatment that uh, shouldn't be taken lightly. But I started that and uh, you do it well. I did in lots of six. Um, so I had. No, you yeah, sorry to interrupt you then, but just for people, it's used to be. Well, I knew it always as electric shock treatment. That's yep. what I knew as growing up, and it's obviously ECT, electric convulsive therapy. Now, when you say lots of six, now were you under? Did I put you under general, or what's yeah. happened? Sedation, right? Yeah. yeah. So you go under general anaesthetic. So it's pretty, it's pretty full on in my. And one of the big side effects is memory loss, uh, and that's why I keep saying I can't remember much because my mm. last twelve months are, are very, very vague. And even before that, long term memories are, are still very vague. It should all come back eventually, but my last um, ECT was only a month ago. So I'm sort of recovering still, but um, talk more about that. Mm. But I had so when I'm talking about it now, I'm talking about it from what my wife's told me or what other people have told me because I can't remember it at all. 
So you can't remember that time at all, really, in the hospitalisation or even the as you said, the holidays just gone, right? The holidays just gone. Yep. I had summer road trip last Christmas um, that I can't remember at all, and gone through photos and things, and um, it's sort of I know that's me. It doesn't jog it. You haven't. You got no association with it all. Not yet. Yeah. Not all yet. Right. So it's been very distressing, um, and it's a very tricky one uh, to sort of try and explain. And then it's it's really it causes a lot of social anxiety because it's sort of like who have I seen lately and who have I caught up with and like I remember mm. our our catch up because mm. um, it was within the last few weeks and that's when I've been been able to hold down memories but anything uh, before the start of November is sort of yeah uh, well we'll talk a bit more about that in detail so because with the lithium, so being taken off lithium, um, was that because he thought? I just want to go back to that real quickly. Because lithium is used for people with bipolar, right? yeah. And then, um, so was that because he thought you you didn't need it, or you just, yeah, yes, yeah. basically. So I went on that initially with uh, the first psychiatrist I ever saw, who thought about the seasonal affective disorder yeah. side of things, and and bipolar helped stabilize the mood um, throughout the year. And then the, I had a change in psychiatrist when I went to the Melbourne Clinic and um, then he just kept me on it. But then I think I sort of started to question it just because it was a drug I'd been on for a long time. Mm. Um, so it was definitely me being like, what do I need to be on this? And he couldn't come up with a, a, a good enough reason to stay on it. Mm. So we decided to go off it. Um, I've, so... Um, to sort of jump jump ahead, uh, the having f- my last ECT a month ago, I on that the, on that particular day, I uh, saw a different psychiatrist who uh, diagnosed me with bipolar bipolar type two, um, and put me straight back onto lithium. Complete change of medication, so everything I was on straight off it uh stop the ect ect can be used as you know for, for bipolar mm. and, and is commonly but um my pattern with ect was i'd and again this is what people tell me i would get very elevated after having six ect and be really up and about for maybe a week or a few days uh and then i'd crash panic attacks and yeah, I was having a lot of panic attacks. Um, so we sort of they tried different things with the ECT, um, tried doing the sort of maintenance to reduce the, the crash down, um, but it wasn't probably the right treatment for me at the time. Um, so, yeah, since that last one, since I saw this new psychiatrist, uh, we've had uh, complete change in medical, medicine regime um, medication regime and um, treatment plan and now it's a bit of a transition period as the old medication gets out of my system yeah. uh, and so it's yeah four weeks since then um, I've still been feeling pretty crap mm. <laughs> um, and it's but it's yeah so it's, it's been a, a huge four months since we got back from I can imagine, yeah. overseas, but in, in but in 
in essence, are you relieved in a way that you've now got the, let's say, the proper diagnosis? Because you've had those years where you've been treated under the assumption of one thing. Yeah. And now after, let's say, 10 years, you finally, do you feel as though you've you've got the right diagnosis and you're on the right path? Yeah, I do feel that it's the right path. Um, I feel a lot more confident in in having that diagnosis and the the treatment plan we're on. And it makes a lot of sense, the the ups and downs that I have had. Um, I'm someone who doesn't, haven't had full-blown mania, but type 2 is more sort of... Yeah, flat. Um, more flat, yeah. more on the flat side, and then periods of elevation. Mm. And I do have periods of, of elevation. Um, and so now the hard part is this waiting, waiting to sort of get back to myself. Um, I feel like I'm just sort of in... Um, Purgatory almost in a way you're sort of waiting to, for that thing just to finally hit the switch where you sort of feel oh, I'm back again or something. I'm back. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Feel like my yeah. feel like myself again, um, and that's where I, I sort of not joke about it. Shouldn't joke about it, mm. but like wanting to almost have ECT again because it did boost me so much. Um, but then I know that I, I, I crashed and yeah. Well, we keep ref- well. Well, my experience for those who are watching or listening is my mum's got bipolar type one. So bipolar type ones are more they have more manic episodes, right? They're not they are they are flat, but they're more there's way more mania. Whereas type two bipolar affective disorder type two is more more flat. So there is two types. But um, the thing with people when I talk about it is that they're still shocked that electric shock treatment goes around. I think it's mm. like the association. This is a barbaric thing. It's been around for years, which it has been, and people are being treated with it. For years it's just never been really talked about but it, they're surprised even in 2019 that still goes on the scary thing for me growing up was ect was seeing the after effects um so with us what happened was the old girl will go in and would have it but the thing is she'd want to see the kids straight away right so they'd bring you into the psych ward and she's just had ect the day before whatever and there's a lot of drooling and all this sort of stuff and the person is not the person you know right so they're mm. shuffling their feet or whatever so my question regarding that is with you is how did your family take it because it can be very telling on the families i don't think it's talked about enough which is what i'm hoping these conversations can sort of do is that there's a family element the kids all that sort of stuff and how 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 are your mum and dad first of all and your wife with seeing you going through this with especially the ect because it's not an yeah. easy thing to see someone afterwards who's had that or to go into a psychiatric facility and see someone after who's had that i'm i was used to it because i've been you know my whole life i've experienced it but i can imagine for someone from the first time or the first couple of times that would have been very hard for him. Mm, it would have would have been, and again, I, my my memory limits yeah. what I what I can sort of say. But uh, I know, so I did the first lot of six as an inpatient um, in in the hospital. So I was since came back from overseas, as I've been hospitalised a couple of times. And were you voluntary every time? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because the reason there's a difference. Time. So the reason why I keep pointing that out is because voluntary is when obviously you go and voluntary whereas involuntary whereas for my experience my mum a lot of the time was involuntary mm. and she couldn't get the help she would need until she was made involuntary yeah. what involuntary is very embarrassing because what happens is cops get cold or neighbours will call the cops and f- put them in there and that's the way they get done because there's still a lot of issues with the system which we'll talk about in a bit yeah but sorry you can't continue with what you're saying well, I was just going to say I know it's been particularly traumatic for my for my wife because um, the second lot of six I, would, I, I did as an outpatient um, so you could actually get taken in in the morning. So they, the way the Melbourne Clinic does it anyway, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I think it was 7 a.m., get dropped off and then get picked up at oh, yeah. midday. Yeah. 
Um, I didn't know they still did that, so I didn't know they did that. So that's pretty, yeah. Yeah. So it's and 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 yeah. I don't know if the treatments changed or, but I would sort of be okay generally afterwards. So they wouldn't. They, Kate, my wife would walk walk me to the waiting room and then sort of hand me off and come back four or five hours later. Um, after you've had the round of the MCT, yeah. Um, and then by that, and I have have flashes of memory of being on the bed and sort of waking up and um, you know feeling not sh- just not knowing what's going on, what's where am I, and and what's what's happened, and then it's sort of scary, isn't it? It's confusing. It's scary. You know, you don't want to have to do it. No. Um, and I can imagine like your Kate, like seeing you after that as well would have been pretty pretty tough to take i think so yeah. i think it's been in a way it's a good thing that i can't remember it um the trauma is sort of not as not as prevalent uh and i know yeah it's been a really traumatic period for kate and and for my parents who uh i think really again hard for them they, they live in geelong hard to know what they can do um and you're just going to get this treatment um and it, it, it's uh, a highly effective treatment, I should say. I, even though I had the the crash afterwards, um, it was very good at lifting me out of a very, very, mm. very dark place. Well, it's still in place because it does work, and that's yeah. the thing. It does sound barbaric to people, and people get shocked when they hear about it. But even in two thousand and nineteen, it's still with people with bipolar. It's still very effective yeah. uh, for treating them. Yeah, and and equally people with 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 severe depression, I think. Yeah. Um, I think it has some sort of success rate of about eighty percent. Of I think that's just getting people out of um, lifting people out of whatever state they're they're in. Mm. So I'm not sure how effective it is in the long term, as as I spoke about the sort of crush effect. And then um, now I think the 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 memory loss is really making things hard um which is annoying for me to hearing you hearing you say that not it's not annoyed at well i am annoyed at hearing you say that because for me i've always been told by psychiatrists or whoever was treating my mum it has no long-term effects right there's no effects to it you actually google there's a whole website dedicated to saying ect's got no harm and there's no proven science on this which i think is a load of crap mm. in regards to memory for example because with my mum for example her long-term memory is fine but it's the short-term memory, which is just like, there is no short-term memory. It's strange how it works because you're saying your short-term memory recently is there, but your long-term memory from some things is not there. Whereas with my mum's experience, from what I know, it's her short-term memory is not really existent. Yeah. Long-term memory, things from you know, 20, 30 years ago is there, which is just it's just one of those things, how it works mm. in the brain and how it affects it. So can she, she can hold the memories down afterwards? like? Oh, a little, not really, no. no. So I speak to my mum pretty much every day. Or every couple of days, and it's always I'll, I get frustrated personally because I'll tell her something from two days ago, and she just can't remember it. Now this is due because she's just been recently diagnosed with on, early onset dementia at the age of fifty nine. She's now sixty, so I've got to manage that through that and not get frustrated with it. But yeah. for me, uh, in that perspective, yeah, the, the memory—it's interesting. She'll have memories still from let's say thirty, forty years ago. But if it's something from the day before I've told her and whatever, and trying to deal with that myself as I get really frustrated. So when I'm talking to her and she'll, I've told her something yesterday and sort of trying it myself out of that frustration mm. and 
sort of understand that. But I, I personally, look, this is just based on lived experience. It's not based on me being an expert or anything like that. I'm not. Just so I can only deal with what I deal with. And ECT on my mum, she's had it a lot more regularly. So she had it pretty much every year or two from the age of 18. So that's going to take an effect over 40 years if you're yep. doing that all the time, right? And what what I've seen notice happen is that as the brain deteriorates is that the, the, the hospitalizations were shorter. So like at the start when I was younger, it used to be like a year and a half, two years, and then now it's like a year. Now it might be three months and now like she's living in, in and out of a ward full time now. So yeah, I think if it's something where if it's done every routinely, like year on year on year on year, it does have an effect. Yeah. Um, and I hope you never have to have it again, uh, personally, because I just think it is it is one of those things. I'd love if there's an alternative treatment, but I don't know. Like it's still effective, which is why they recommend it and use it. But um, the med, I think... The way I always viewed it was as a reset. Yeah. So that's the way I was always told. It's just going to, mum used to say, oh, reset. it's going to reset my brain, which sort of put me a bit more at ease. So I thought of it like, like you're shocking your brain into resetting itself and rebooting. Yeah. And then you get the medications right. So then you experiment with the different medication mixes. And until you get that right, then you solidify that program and away you go. Yeah. So, and I heard, that, I heard that as well, that, right. that reset. Yeah. Um, which is sometimes what the brain needs mm. when you're in a certain, a certain place. Um, yeah and I hope I don't have to have it again just more because of the the, the memory stuff I'm experiencing at the moment and the doctors say sort we'll come of, back and all that sort of stuff yeah um, which you know it's only it's only four weeks mm. so it should it should come back but it certainly um, is making things challenging at the moment I can imagine is that, and that's more just as your personal frustration, or just as you said, you you meet someone and you've talked, they've said, "Oh, what about this from a week ago, or whatever," or yeah, it just gets frustrating because you just can't recall it. It's just frustration, yeah, um, and a bit of, yeah, uh, I sort of want to opt out of the, of social things just because I'm not sure who I've seen lately and what discussions, but but I've found once once I discuss it, people are really interested. Mm people are fascinated like it is pretty fascinating really this whole you take out a whole chunk of time and you know i caught up with some mates on the weekend who had a holiday who met us for a period of time on the overseas trip uh, so there we sort of they recounted the whole period we had together for me mm. um which was nice but at the same time i'm like oh, that's a complete blank yeah. for me i can't remember any of that mm. um and I think I, I probably, if I really try hard, I can sort of maybe get some of the memories back. But I think uh, I've just been so frustrated that I've sort of given up, yeah. And just sort of been like, no, I can't remember. Mm. So what are you being? Are you currently just on? Obviously, you've been on medication. Are you currently on? You know, some med- couple of medications, or what, what's the current treatment plan for you? Is it regularly talking to psychs? Is there something like mindfulness you practice, or what's your current sort of plan of attack? To, to, which is great in sort of way you got the diagnosis now. As I said, you can put something in place to deal with it. So, what's your current yeah. way of dealing with it or attacking it moving forward? So, yep, on um, a mix of medication, not as much as I, I was on, but um, more for bipolar. The um, I see a psychiatrist weekly and a psychologist weekly. I'll see him later today. Um, and then I big thing for me is getting into a routine. So meditation is part of that routine. Um, but I've been just from from last week start getting up first thing, get to the gym, get up at the same time every day, get to the gym. Even though I, it's the last thing I feel like doing, and it's 
I have to drag myself there every time, but I always feel better. I post it, yeah. Post it. Um, and then because I'm not I'm not working at the moment, I'm not going to... I'm not going to work um, until the new year. So it's sort of trying to build in a routine for each day where I fill, fill stuff in. So both with people um, and in my own time. So, so yeah, so I go gym, get home, meditation, mm-hmm. breakfast, and that's sort of my start, start of the day routine. And people with, with bipolar routine is... It is. Absolutely crucial. My mum never stuck to one. I can tell you right now, but yes, it is crucial. It's bloody hard. It is, yeah. So with, because the thing with bipolar people don't realise, I don't know if it's so much with type two, I could be completely wrong here, I'm just talking from my experience, but people with bipolar in my experience, well, my mum certainly and a couple of others I know, always thought they were better. Mm. So I'll never go back in again and they will come out and go, I'm better now, I don't need to take my medication. So then they don't take their medication and then, you know. Yeah, yeah. Cops get called or whatever, and then they're back into square one, have shock treatment again, come out. I'm never going to get sick again. Take it for two or three months. Stop taking it. I'm better now. I'm cured or whatever. And then the way they go back again. I've heard that as a common story, actually, with a couple of mm. uh, other people I know of it. So it's um quite it's quite the routine. And growing up, the old girl never had much of a routine. I think her having kids was lucky for her because it gave her that some routine where you have to make breakfast and drop them off and, yep. and that's it. But then you have all that old, idle time during the day where sort of things would happen but um it's 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 interesting to say that the, the routine you're doing it now so that when you get into back into the work environment where it's sort of there's another thing coming at you you're going to have that set in place yeah, yeah. that's the plan right. that's the plan to sort of set it up definitely for that morning plan. Mm. Uh, and at the moment even though i feel um pretty shitty uh i feel like it would be great to be at work almost well at least doing something regularly from you know nine to five it's amazing. It's amazing how much you sort of rely on work to 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 fit your routine, and once that's taken away, and um, trying to fill in that oh, yeah. idle time, yeah, yeah. as you say, I'm really struggling with that. And, and the fact, so at the moment when I when I say I'm shitty, I'm sort of in a more depressed state as the ECT wears off, and um, this change in medication, so mm. it hasn't quite kicked in yet. So I'm just not interested in things. So I'm sort of just like, and I can't concentrate. So I'm really struggling to read and do things that, you know, on one hand you'd think, great, you've got another month before you have to go back to work. I've got all of December where I'm not working. But uh, I sort of don't know what to do with myself. Mm. And it's a real real struggle. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I, I... I can understand your mum having that idle time in the middle of the day. Yeah, it's just a. Uh... Well, it's dangerous because she was she's type one, which is more mania, right? So mania is like when manic summons manic, it's not good. It's crazy. You know, they could end up getting in the car and driving to Perth just because yeah. they think someone was doing this and that. You know what I mean? You come home and you know where's the old girl or whatever? She's not there or whatever. Whatever it is, right? They mm. have all these grand plans and all these schemes and stuff they want to do and all these paranoid thoughts and stuff they put in your head. So. Now, I just want to talk about um, bipolar awareness in general. So I think it was around 2%, you told me before, was a stat. I thought it was 1%, but it's 2%. Yeah. Do have bipolar. Um, you know, I, I think it's 50-50 in terms of couples in regards to what I know. So living with someone 
Well, being a partner of someone with a severe mental illness can be pretty pretty taxing. So from what I know, it's either they stay together, which is great. I've got massive respect for that, or they're either a single parent or whatever. Yeah. So in your in your time working, because you've worked with programs who deal with mental health, was there anything ever touched on about, let's say, bipolar schizophrenia or kids who had parents with those situations or anything like that? Or No, no, there wasn't. It was um, all about anxiety and depression was the, mm. the work, the space I was in. Uh, and I think that's that has become a lot more accepted, and people, you know, people can put their hand up and say they've got depression, and it's sort of now well understood and 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 well known. And workplaces are much better at just giving people time off and having pro- processes and programs in place to help people deal with those sort of um, issues, which is which is great. But yeah, having uh recently been been diagnosed with with bipolar it's it is pretty amazing how little there is mm. around bipolar and schizophrenia and um other issues that are, that are less less common but are also pretty pretty prevalent like the um yeah i think i think it was in america that's two percent um of the population that have that have bipolar and that's a lot of people. Mm. Um, and as you said, you look at the Australian population at 26 million, 2%. It's, it's a lot it's a of people. large number, yeah. Uh, and so I think that is probably the next the next wave of mental health. And initially it is just about awareness. And um, I think as much as the time for awareness is sort of particularly around anxiety and, and depression, um it's kind of come to a head where okay there's enough awareness out there what's what are we doing what 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 things actually help and what things mm. can people actually access to to do and i think that's um an important piece of work on that front in a more practical sense but then there is this awareness around other issues that people experience to sort of get them up to the same level as as where anxiety and depression is at yeah, and that, yeah, and I agree, and that's that's one of the reasons why we're doing this sort of content is to sort of sort of get something out there at least in some way because um there's still I still personally think there's a massive stigma with bipolar and schizophrenia. The reason why I know it's because um I've I've had I've had people when I posted something on 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 LinkedIn or Facebook DM me out the blue and I had no idea they had a similar situation to me growing up with a single parent with with mental illness or schizophrenia mm. and. They're telling me stuff. I'm like, God, I know exactly what you're going through, but you never hear about it. No. And there's a lot of people who are 50 or 60 years old now who had parents with that, and back in the day, it was sort of hush hush, under the rug, right? So yeah, you know, who are only positioned to speak out and actually use some of their, let's say, they've got money or voice to do something about it. So, but they don't because I still think there's a bit of embarrassment about it or stigma about it because when you grow up with a parent with that situation, you're always told, "Don't tell anyone." Yeah. You know? So you go to school and you might act out at school, and they. Why, you know, and you get in trouble and you get treated like... Because the school can only take you or people can only take you for what you present, right? You don't wear your life resume on your sleeve, right? So people can only take you for what you are. So as a young person in those formative years, you do have a lot of um, issues growing up in that situation, you know, a lot of of things and you do act out in a way because it's still not, you know, there's not much awareness around it. So for me, as you said, I I think majority of mental health awareness is associated or just people just know it as depression and anxiety. Which is very serious, and I'm not trying to trivialise it or make my light of it in a mm. way. But I think all the resources, like it's the awareness campaign around bipolar, I mean, sorry, depression and anxiety, has been a great and it's done its job. But I, 
I agree. It needs to be start shifting into these other areas of social issues with kids who have parents with that or depression and I'm oh, sorry, bipolar and schizophrenia and start normalizing not normalizing it, but raising yep. awareness to those pockets of mental illness which definitely don't have any conversation that I think that's tangible really in the public. And you can just do a quick YouTube search for that man of content online or even or even Google um, about this sort of space, and there's hardly anything. No, it's nothing. And uh, and it's really frustrating for me because that if the person obviously who has the illness, obviously they they are the priority, and that's how it's treated. But for me, if that person is responsible for other people's lives, you know, the people who they're responsible for should be the priority, which is never the case for what me and my younger sister were growing up. You know, we're always left in the lurch and whatever else, mm. and then you get put back in our home with someone who's a pretty you got a pretty severe mental illness, right? So from a point of view in regards to negligence or just to a dangerous environment, that always hangs over your head and causes you a lot of stress and it does shape who you are. It does affect you who you are moving forward. So that's from my issue regarding the bipolar. So that's why I'm passionate about getting this sort of stuff and just sort of saying, yes, there's a large amount of people who function in society or who don't with bipolar and schizophrenia. There's things like electric shock treatment, which is still going, which you don't know about. Um, the psychiatric wards, locked wards, you know, they're not a nice place to go. Yeah. So I almost sort of think that the depression and, and anxiety, it's like, it seems to be everyone now just posts on social media about depression and anxiety and that's it, right? It just seems to be that way. Whereas for me, my cynicism kicks in and sort of says, well, if you think you're depressed, I'll take you out. Let's go to a psychiatric ward. Let's put you in overnight and give you a bad of ECT and, you know, let's see. Mm. You know, that's just my cynicism coming into it because of the lack of awareness around these other issues and they have a massive social impact on people because if, if someone with bipolar schizophrenia they obviously it's a massive amount of resources which, and they should get that but it's the people around them as well yeah and they get no help and that's that's the big frustration i have is that children or parents like what's the support for them like if they want to go talk to someone this is what i had to do so this is my personal experience so i never really talked to anyone about my mum's issues until i was 28 which is far too late and stupid but um, to, to get that help or to talk to someone about it, I had to go and pretend to the doctor that I was had depression or anxiety so I could get those six sessions to see from the Medicare. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's just like, it shouldn't be that way. You know, yeah. it should be a free thing. You know, and, and, my, and my cynicism and anger from it was basically like, as a government, you know, you didn't do nothing for, for me as a young person, really. You've done nothing. So it's just like, well, now when I need a little bit of help, maybe I should have a... You know, it should be, you know, you want it to be there. Mm. But there's nothing really for the families and that. And, you know, we've got a large amount of people who have have children with serious issues or could be you have a parent with a serious issue, right? But for that person itself or the family, they need, where's their support network for someone, but yep. they also need their own uh, support network or something in place, which there's nothing around. Like, there's nothing they can go to. There's nothing they can really look up online. There might be some groups and some smaller organizations, which they are, who do try and do something about it. But for me, those large organisations who have built that massive brand, they are brands. Yeah, they're Let's brands. Say, they're brands, beyond yep. blue and that. They have nothing on their websites about it. They don't donate, they don't spend any of the money to these other ones like that, you know? Mm. And for me, that's the very, very frustrating thing, which is why I appreciate you talking about this so openly because it's not an easy thing. I do I, I do think there's a little undercurrent of lack of understanding of what bipolar schizophrenia is for someone who's not experienced with it. Yeah. There's a massive... Like, I think if someone's not experienced with depression or anxiety now they sort of got an idea about it but with the more serious conditions bipolar and schizophrenia i don't think someone unless they've experienced or got a family with it they've got no idea mm. um, and what goes with that sort of stuff because it's a lifelong thing it's something you can't cure yeah it's a manageable it's a managed condition yeah and it's a very serious condition especially in times when the person's not feeling the best 
So it is. Yeah. But yeah, I I think the, the big organisations do have a role to play. And I think it's tricky with uh, how much those organisations try and do. Mm. I, I think that's... I think that's probably why they haven't ventured down that space because um, there's almost too many too many things they could cover, and it's I'm sure there's probably smaller organisations you, know, you talked about that might do um, stuff for kids mm. of um, parents with bipolar, or um, but they're not not nearly as well known and don't have those those big brands. So it might be a I mean it'd be great to see. It'd be really interesting to see what comes out of the um, Mental Health Royal Commission. Um, yeah, we haven't talked about that actually. Yeah, um, yeah. So the interim report mm. was just just came out, and I guess they a lot of it was about the change in funding. I, I couldn't concentrate on reading it, but mm. I, I will read. Don't worry, I couldn't either, mate. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it'd be interesting to see as that um, continues next year, and and how much of a focus that has, and what the government does do because they've already committed to. Um, uh, um, putting in all the recommendations. Right. We'll see if they do because um, the spend is not enough. Um, no. And as I, you know, as I said, like it'll be interesting to see. Um, for me, as I said, for my lived experience, my old passion is the welfare of the kid, or the welfare of the young person, or the welfare of the adult moving forward, and obviously welfare of the people with those conditions as well. So, it'll be interesting to see what happens in that. I personally don't know if kids will be addressed in that. Mm. And what I mean by that is generally what happens is if you have someone who's got bipolar schizophrenia as a parent, unless you've got a, a family who can support you, you generally get placed into a foster home and then yeah, there's your new foster home and away you go and, yep. and that's really it. There's no one coming to see you. You might have a social worker check check up on you every couple of weeks. But other than that, there's nothing at all. So be interesting to see if they commit to it. Mm. Um, I don't know what the spend is, but there needs to be a lot more spend because I can imagine the flow and effect of the economy. Like as an economic decision, like I'm not too I'm not too into this area, but like just that's the flow and effect that, that someone with that with a condition can have in regards to like the kids are effective and the kids statistically are more likely going to be more likely to go to jail, not have a job, yeah. less contributed to society. Like the flow and effect is for for, for years, for yeah. decades. So yeah, and I think that's what that's what a big part of what will come out of the royal commission because mm-hmm. um, it is such a uh, I, and in terms of actual service provision we was saying before there's so much, the awareness raising is sort of around certain mental health issues is is certainly at its peak and has done enough mm. sort of almost in, in lots of ways um but it is about okay now there's sort of a bottleneck with with services because people are more open just to accessing services and more able to or more willing to sort of put their hand up and say i need some help and the problem is there's there's not enough places to go. So I agree with you, and I think the accessibility of them even like you have to go to the doctor to do that to get the thing on Medicare. Like, yeah. like that's pretty. I just don't understand it, you know. And it's it's one of those things. But you're right. The bottleneck of services. How are they going to expand that? Mm. Um, what are they going to do to accelerate that? Will be quite interesting. Yeah, it will be. Yeah, mm. so we'll have to uh, wait and see on that one. But it's only only can be a good thing that mm. it's happening. I think. We will. So, what's your plans for the for the future, mate? What's your goals? Anything you've got set out you want to achieve? Or obviously, you're going to start a new job next year, which is great. Yeah. So I'll, so, I'll start a new job in the in the new year and um, build on that routine that I spoke about. Uh, at the moment, I'm sort of focused on just just getting out and and and, and doing things. So, cool. as I've actually had. Um, 
I'll be completely honest, two really crap days where I've struggled to get out of out of bed or, or struggled to get out of the house. Um, and it's been sort of my uh, wife forcing me to um, get out and, and do stuff. And, um, Which I think with people who are watching or listening with bipolar, that's pretty normal. That's what I'm yeah. going to say from my mum's experience. Like my mum used to sleep into bloody two o'clock in the day sometimes or she'd yeah. be up and about till three in the morning. Like it's it's not a... It's not a not common thing with people with bipolar. No, it's not, um, unfortunately. But it's sort of, I don't know, my take on it is I've sort of, I gave in for a couple of days and just couldn't handle, couldn't handle the um, the real world and trying to trying to get myself out there and just let it take over, which is not a good thing. But your partner obviously pushed you to get out there, which is great. Yeah, yeah, she did, um, and and sort of develop a routine for the for the week sort of contact friends and booking lunch catch-ups and and different things to sort of just have a have a schedule that i'm then committed to mm. and i think um so for me uh, my current goals are pretty simple around to get back into that to that routine of the morning routine i spoke about um and sort of be easy on myself until christmas and be easy on myself afterwards as well but um, particularly with sort of all that's gone on, not expect not expect too much, and it's it's still a huge challenge for me around still working on that mm. that um, that perfectionism and that thing I spoke about. If I can't do it well, then I won't then I won't do it. So I've just got to do things. I've just got to um, put my hand up and. Um, do you try? So you're actually actively trying to do new things that you don't think you might be good at, or what's the sort of well, I've sort of forgotten how to do things right, like okay. um, like cooking. Cooking's a good example. Yeah. I'm not. Don't worry, a, I can't even cook, so yeah, oh, you'd be better than me. No, well, I I could cook some things, very yeah. simple, um, but I won't do it at the moment because I'm. Just, so you won't even attempt it because you don't think. Don't think I'll do a very good job. Right, okay. Um, and I'm currently living where we're living with my wife's parents, which is great. They've been a huge, a huge support. Um, and sort of we'll take a bit of time living there while we sort of sort sort things mm-hmm. out and um uh her mum my mother-in-law is a, is an excellent cook and sort of has it very well planned and so I sort of almost don't want to um impose on on that and produce something that's not nearly not up to standard and that's right. sort of you still think that way that's the way I think about right, things okay. so that's so that's really my long-term goal is to change that. But you can recognise it at least, though. You recognise I can recognise that. it. Yeah. I can right. recognise it. Um, for me, the recognition part's somewhat easy. Um, it's the actual accepting and Change, changing. Changing it, right, yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's back to that. I just want to fix it. I just want to stop Which is the normal thinking. bloke mentality, right? Yep. just want to fix things. Yeah. I just want to stop thinking that way and start thinking this other way and have a more healthy approach and mm. um and that's going to take time and work with with psychologists and um and just uh, generally a lot of self-reflection and a lot of a, a lot of work mm. so have you got any advice for anyone who may be listening or watching this like if they're um sort of feeling you're like cause you've gone on a big journey like it's from 21 to obviously now before you've really got the right diagnosis so what how did you how would you advise someone if they sort of maybe think I've got something like I might that sounds similar to me or what you know like that's sort of something I can re- uh, relate with what sort of advice would you have for someone in that position 
Um, I'd start by saying sometimes it is just shit, and that's that's okay. And and I think a lot of um, it's easy to give advice, but it, uh, it's really hard to implement that advice. Advice. So yeah. So you I, can take that advice, but you can go, yeah, 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 but actually do it is the. Yeah. It's it's bloody hard, and I right. think recognizing that is sort of the first most important um, part because, like right now, I've, I know I should be doing certain things, but I I just can't. And um, sometimes it's okay to not be able to and to just let things let things be. But the quicker you can sort of get into a routine, develop those things, and, and probably the the biggest thing is to to get the right professional help. Um, and by that I mean get second opinions that's probably the biggest regret of my last 10 years is, is sort of having and you do you just trust the professionals that you sort of when you turn up to a hospital when you when you, yeah, when you turn up to a hospital you give you're assigned and a psychiatrist and that's been my psychiatrist ever since um, and he's and I don't put any blame on him not recognizing the diagnosis he's only doing what he thought was best but i wish i had have gone out and seek sought second opinions and seen some other people to try and work out and maybe this bipolar diagnosis would have come up earlier and would have changed the treatment plan i've on and i wouldn't have had the last well, the last 12 months that i've had mm. um so i think that's that's something that is when you're in the thick of the shit um, it's really hard to go and, as you say, go to a GP, get sessions to see a psychologist, organise to see a psychiatrist. It's expensive. It's, um, but at the end of the day, your health is the most important thing. And so if you can, um, and there's waiting lists and there's all that sort of crap that, mm. it, that you have to deal with. So um, I, I give this advice knowing that it's bloody hard. Um, but I think the the better, the quicker you can try and um, see, seek professional help and the quicker you can work out if you like them or you don't like them or you're not happy with something and you can move on and see someone else, the better. Mm. Um, it's very hard to do, but it's so important. Oh, well, thanks for that, Hoags, and appreciate you doing this. I know it's not, not easy for anyone and I really do appreciate your openness and your candour about it. Um, the, it's an important conversation to have, as we were saying before, and why we sort of why you agreed to do this was there's not much content around the bipolar space and yeah. anything like that. And I really appreciate, uh, you, as I said, your honesty and your openness in telling us your story. Um, and I would encourage anyone uh, to please, if this resonates with you, implement Simon's advice. Um, as someone who's from a lived experience point of view as well, he's, it's all practical advice, so please take action. But once again, really thank you uh, very much for doing this. Um, anyone who wants to learn more about this, just punch in anywhere, um, bipolar. Um, there's COPME as well for children, so children of parents with uh, mental illness. There's an institute there which has lots of good um, material on it. There's also one in Victoria with Satellite Foundation. And obviously, if you punch in Simon Hogan's uh, name into Google, there'll be a lot of videos with you as well with Headspace and some uh, stories on you as well. If you want to learn more about yep. Simon, please do that. Um, good luck with everything in the future, mate. Um, Thanks, Joe. Really do appreciate this, and uh, it's it's been great. And... Uh, it's been great to listen to this um, and I'm hoping that people online do find it. If you do, leave a comment or even a question, we'll try to get back to you. Make sure you subscribe and hopefully give us a rating on iTunes 
uh, store if you can or Spotify that helps us out. And so, but hit that subscribe button to the Authentic Socials, Authentic Convos podcast. But we'll leave it there, Hoax. Uh, it's been a great, as I said, been a great conversation and really do appreciate your time doing this. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having, no having, and thanks for sharing all your, all your stuff as well. No worries. Thank you. Thank you.